0: Periodic, periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs.
1: And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks.
0: Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, the International Space Station and
1: beyond! <laughs> it is STEM for those of us who want to throw a party in space but don't want to plan it. <laughs> That's actually not my joke. My cousin wrote that.
0: It's so good.
1: I've got great cousins. Hey, what's new?
0: The caterpillars are back. I oh. looked at the tree, the lemon tree, where the giant swallowtail caterpillars were. Um, and I saw these tiny orange dots on some of the leaves which I know now is the first stage and so I have been monitoring it very closely and last night I saw the tiny tiny caterpillars have now emerged and so that means soon enough they will be growing larger looking like bird poop and then hopefully (laughs) several of them will go into chrysalis stage on the tree so yay caterpillar watch 2021.
1: I was going to ask when the bird poop stage was. Yeah, soon. 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 Uh, you're, I can't wait for, for you to be like around the house being like, yes, the bird poop is coming. The bird poop stage. That's great. How long is their um life cycle?
0: Well, last time it was quite long because I realized they were overwintering, so it was months and months Mm. that they are in the chrysalis, but maybe because it's happening during the summer now, it will be a lot shorter, because I kept looking it up and waiting and waiting for the butterfly to emerge, and it was months and months.
1: I'm looking up giant swallowtails now. They're so pretty. They are. They look like (laughs) tie-dye. How about you? There is a new fossil species of horseshoe crab, Mm. and guess who it's named after? David Attenborough. Uh! The narrator of like those Our Planet things on Netflix, the like the, the voice of the earth, I'll call him. <laughs>
0: yes. The soothing, soothing voice of the earth. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yes, I was just listening. Uh, Tamika sent us a clip that he actually narrates that I was listening to earlier today. So I have his voice very prominently in my head right now. And I, all I want right now is to hear him talking about this horseshoe crab that is named for him. <laughs>
1: I hope so. I, I honestly, I hope that he that he gets to talk about this. It's called Attenborough Limus Superspiniosis. It's a horseshoe crab. And so it's kind of, its overall body is kind of shaped like a horseshoe mm-hmm. with spikes coming off of the end of it. Lots of protection. Yeah. And this was found in the mountains of
2: Russia. Wow.
0: You know, since we've done all these interviews, I'm now thinking about like, oh, What was there millions of years ago? It was probably a lake or a body of water or an ocean.
1: Yep. And then one last thing I'll add. The fossils that they studied, they found evidence of, like, worms (gasps) living on top of the horseshoe crab. I know that sounds gross to be like, there were worms. But I imagine, you know, you see those pictures of, like, a bird riding on a rhino. Mm -hmm. I imagine he just, you know, that crab always had a little friend.
0: (laughs) Uh Oh. Oh, also, we got a voice memo from my friend, director and producer Mikey Alfred. He wrote and directed the film North Hollywood, which is available for purchase on iTunes. And if you check it out, you might see me in one scene. But (laughs) (laughs) more to the point, let's take a listen to the voice memo he sent.
1: Hey, it's Mikey Alfred. I'm going to give you a math fact. There is no Roman numeral for zero, as there was no need for a numeral to represent it. The system of Roman numerals was developed as a means of trading and bartering. Instead of a Roman numeral, they used the Latin word nulla, which meant zero. The Romans didn't have a positional numerical system. The one we use today, the numbers have value because of their position. With the Romans, there was just value and
2: the position didn't matter. That's beautiful to me. That's a cool way to look at life. That's why I like that fact.
1: I like your friend Mikey, and I like that every time I went to go talk about the fact, there was more of the fact. Um, That's very cool. I had no idea about that.
0: I had no idea either. I feel like uh, there's so much about languages and numbers. I don't know.
1: I love that. Now, we have another fun space episode this week. So for story time, we're trying something new. We have a special segment that we're calling Ask a Space Explorer, featuring one of our favorite guests, NASA engineer Tracy
2: Drain. Yay!
1: Honestly, just for fun, we wanted to give folks an opportunity to ask a legit space explorer anything you wanted to ask. So we had some great questions from listeners and some of our friends and some that came from Instagram.
0: Yes, but first we're talking to Penny Dalton, the International Space Station Battery Subsystems Manager. Basically, she oversees its power system, how to keep the lights on. It's really,
1: (laughs) it's hard to wrap your head around the kinds of batteries that can power an entire space station, but that's her area of expertise. So it was a really fascinating conversation. Absolutely. All right,
0: let's get to our interview with Penny Dalton.
1: (laughs) Can you explain your job in the simplest terms? My job
3: in the simplest terms is... I keep the electricity and the lights on for the International Space Station.
1: Nice. Now, what about in the most technical terms?
3: More technical, I would say I am the International Space Station Battery Subsystem Manager. I am responsible for all aspects of the main electric power system batteries, including build, design, test, launch, operation, and disposal.
0: Very cool. Yeah,
3: that's very cool. Thank you so
1: much.
0: It's an important job. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I've seen pictures of the International Space Station. Um, We've even spoken to astronauts on this podcast who spent time there. But I don't think I'd ever really thought too deeply about its size, the length of the build, how it came together, could you give us some rough figures of, you know, how large it is, you know, where it is orbiting, things like that, to give people a sense of the International Space Station? Okay. You can see it from Earth.
3: There is a website called spotthestation.nasa.gov. And you tell it where you are and it'll tell you the next time you can see the space space station and how high up it is. So it's constantly going around the earth. You can't always see it where you are, but it's pretty cool. I was out in Houston one time um, working on the space station with some uh, coworkers and we went outside at night and just watched it and it went all the way across the horizon. It was really cool. Oh,
0: wow. Okay, so that, that, that's where it is. <laughs> yes, that's where it is. Visible to the human eye from Earth. Yes. I mean,
3: it looks like a star, but you can track it mm-hmm. moving. It's really cool. Wow. And the, the actual size of the whole thing, you've seen it. The center part is where people are living and, and doing space. But then you have the solar arrays that go all the way out to the ends. That entire length is about the length of a football field. Sheesh.
1: Wow. Okay. (laughs) And it weighs
3: about a million pounds. Uh, Did you say a million? Yes. Oh, my goodness. It's got about 13,000 cubic feet of habitable volume. Wow. Wow. And what's really, really cool to me is, so I work on the electric power system It went up in December of 2000. Mm -hmm. So the electric power system has been operational and working for over 20 years now. And that was just a piece of it. It took, I'd have to look up the number, but like 30 or 40 different launches to build it and add everything to it to get it to where it is now. So it was a marvel of engineering when you think that there were like, 15 different countries that were involved you've got metric versus us kind of measurements, and it all plugged together and it worked. It never was tested on the ground. It was tested once it got up in orbit.
1: Just out of curiosity, um, do you have uh, an idea of the scale how big the power source is like how much how much weight does that take up?
3: I can tell you that one of my batteries, and there are 24 of them up there right now, each of them weighs 410 pounds.
0: These numbers are blowing (laughs) my mind.
3: (laughs) I know. When you think of a battery, you think of what goes in a flashlight or your iPhone, Mm -hmm. but my batteries are about two feet by two feet by one and a half feet. They're big.
1: Wow. Okay, wait, hold on. I want to back up okay. just a little bit. You were saying that, you know, the battery system was assembled over time in orbit, and the actual space station was also assembled over time. Can you describe what it was like when it came together and maybe share a couple memories that you have from those times?
3: The first part of the electric power system went up in December of 2000, and we watched the launch and I mean, it was just like all these years that we spent working on it have come to fruition. And they went up and they and they mated with there was a, a Russian segment up there that it mated with, and we powered it up, and everything worked the way it was supposed to. So I mean, that was like the ultimate when that happened. And then there were three more launches of this of, of the different parts of the um, power system. So I got to watch each of those as they were integrated. We've been swapping out those batteries. So I've been watching that as it happened. And the thing that just happened today, which I thought would be very interesting to tell you, is we got new solar arrays. Yay! Wow! Yay! <laughs> and that was, there was a, an, a, an astronaut, two astronauts were out there doing what's called an extravehicular um, activity activity. In their spacesuits and they installed the the new two arrays. There have been two others that they installed like a week and a half ago. So that was pretty exciting too.
1: Is an extra vehicular activity, is that a spacewalk? Yes. Ah. We call them EVAs. Oh. oh. And also I can't imagine how accomplished you all feel. I mean, when I plug a USB into my computer correctly the first time, I'm like, well, I'm a genius. <laughs> so <laughs>
0: Since we did this interview, I watched a video of the solar arrays unfurling, and it was Uh truly
1: incredible. Uh, Can you describe it? Yeah.
0: So you see the astronaut at the top of the screen, and they did a time lapse video because I think it took like 10 minutes. And it's this enormous solar panel unrolling down the length of the existing solar arrays. And you just think about, you know, having had this interview with Penny and having had a chance to speak with Tracy Drain and all the people, you know, that do the engineering that create these, like, what a feat it is to design this, to get it Mm -hmm. up there, and then for the astronauts to do the EVA, to install it correctly, and how many people it really takes to make something like that happen. And then it just looks so kind of like elegant, unfurling in space. I love that. The space station was originally supposed to last 15 years, but it's been up there for a lot longer than that. Why do you think it's had such longevity?
3: Uh, well, uh, things don't age the same way in space as they do on the Earth. You don't have any moisture mm-hmm. to cause rust. You, you have space particles, you have atomic oxygen, but we designed around that so that, that they would last. Things that wear out, like the batteries, have been swapped out. You know, they mm-hmm. were they were designed for a six-and-a-half-year operation. An interesting thing about this kind of batteries is they get 16 charge and discharge cycles every day because that's mm-hmm. how often the space station goes around the, the Earth. And when you're in the sun, you're using your solar arrays – and then you, you go on the backside and you're in the dark and you're using your batteries. So it's six and a half years, but they went for 10. And then they wow. were starting to get a little iffy. So that's when we, we started putting in the new ones. We started out with uh, nickel hydrogen technology, electrochemistry, and we have been, we switched over from nickel hydrogen to the lithium ion technology. And these are also designed for 10 years. So that's how we, to me, the electric power system is the most important part of, of the space station, because without it, you don't have electricity, you don't have heating, you don't have lights, you can't run your experiments, nothing. So as long as you've got power, things are going to be able to keep going.
1: And what's a, uh, what's a charge and discharge cycle?
3: Oh, um, when you're using one of your battery powered things like your, your cell phone, that's, it's discharging. It's drawing the power of your battery down, and then you plug it back in, and that's charging it. So most people on their phone, you have one of those charge cycles per day. We're having 16 per day on our space station batteries.
0: Yeah. So, okay, let me just see if I've gotten this correctly. So, because the space station is orbiting the Earth so quickly, it can orbit the Earth in about 92 minutes. It's going from daylight to night rapidly. Yes. And that is why you have so many cycles. Yes. So, it's charging with the solar arrays when it's on a part of the Earth that has daylight, and then it's drawing the power of the batteries when it's in some place where it's night. Yes.
1: And most batteries, they have a certain number. I mean, maybe not an exact number, but around a certain number of charge and discharge cycles that they have in the life of the battery. How many do these have?
3: These new ones have 60,000 charge and discharge cycles. Pretty good. Can you imagine if your cell phone was good for (laughs) 60,000? You never have to replace it. Or your electric car, (laughs) you know?
0: Is there a future... Application on Earth for batteries with a much longer charge discharge cycle, and and would that be advantageous for something like electric cars?
3: Uh, well, I the the Teslas do use lithium ion, mm. so yes, but the ones that they use are are the the kind that you would use in your cell phone, so they're mm-hmm. a lot cheaper than what we got for the space station. So you want sixty thousand cycles, it's going to cost you a lot more money
0: than if you want
1: 300 cycles.
0: (laughs) Might not be cost effective.
1: Right. Right. (laughs) Okay, let's pause this conversation and take a quick break. We'll be right back.
0: And we're back. What are the challenges with launching new technology, upgrades, new batteries, new wiring, perhaps, when you have a a space station that's been assembled? Some parts are, you know, at this point, 20 years old. What are the challenges with older technology in the original components of the space station and and new technologies you're now trying to integrate?
3: Right. And that was something that we went into this this upgrade very carefully because we're putting them into an existing slot. We have existing batteries, we're p- pulling those out and we're putting a new one in. Therefore, exact same size, right? So the mm-hmm. fit and form factor has to be the same. Um, the old technology operated at a lower temperature than the new technology. So we had to take that into account. How do we redesign the system without doing anything so that we could raise the temperature? The lithium ion is more like room temperature. The nickel hydrogen were more like zero degrees. So, you know, you you had to take into account how we could operate the thermal control system that was there without changing it. And that was done by some software changes to you know, flush the ammonia th- through the, the, the thermal control system so that it was not getting as cold. The nickel hydrogen batteries operated on a pressure cycle. So mm-hmm. we looked at the pressure that was inside one of these, and that's when we would say, okay, you've reached a certain pressure, charging is over. Don't put any more charge in. Lith- lithium ion are not pressure we'd have to do that by voltage. So again, these were more uh, tweaks that we had to do to the system. The nickel hydrogen are much heavier. So we needed two nickel hydrogen for one lithium ion. So we had to figure hmm. out how to way to replace two with one in the existing hmm. size and factor. So we had to develop another box to cover where the old nickel hydrogen had been to complete the electrical circuit. So th- th- there's a lot of things that happened. Yeah. We had to look at safety. You have to worry about the safety, the, the lithium ion, everybody's heard about them catching on fire in a laptop or something. So we had to worry about making sure that they were designed so that they didn't do that. The nickel hydrogen didn't have that same issue. So all of these were upfront before we started cutting any metal.
1: Wow, And that's called thermal runaway, right, when those batteries kind of explode? What are some safety precautions you took to avoid that?
3: So thermal runaway would happen when you overcharge a battery. And Mm -hmm. so what we have inside of our batteries is there are 30 lithium ion cells, and each individual cell is controlled separately so that if any one of them gets to a certain voltage, we can cut it out and it's gone, you're no longer charging it. So that was one of the, and we look at temperatures. If it starts getting too warm, we'd stop charging at that point. And there's different levels. The um, charging and discharging is controlled through something called a battery charge discharge unit. So it has Mm -hmm. some built-in controls that say, okay, if you reach this limit, stop the BCDU, the battery charge discharge Mm -hmm. unit. But if it somehow continues and you reach a higher limit, that's when you cut out a cell.
0: I've always amazed by the question, the technical questions you're able to ask our guests, whether it's about like sound engineering or battery. Like, you know so much about so many things. Do you research things that you're interacting around the house or like how, how do you know so much about so many different things?
1: Um, you know what? I always read the manual. Whenever I get something, I always sit down and I really read the whole manual, including the dumb, boring warnings that I always know because I don't like things breaking on me. And Mm -hmm. I like to make sure that I take care of routine maintenance, at least. Mm -hmm. And batteries are usually included in that. Are there a certain... um, Gosh, I don't even know how to phrase this how many batteries could, could go out on the International Space mm. Station and it would still be okay? Like, what's the the minimum we need here?
3: So, let's see. There's 24. We could lose um, a fourth of them and and they would still be okay. You probably would have oh, wow. to power down some of the experiments, but, mm-hmm. y- you know, you'd still have – the crew would still be okay.
0: In the Hollywood movie – uh, a, a battery would slip out of an astronaut's hand and float away. Has uh, anything like that ever happened, or is that the thing that sort of thing that only happens in movies and TV shows? The, the batteries, like I said, they're pretty big. So yes, yes. I
3: mean you can when you've I've seen a EVAs. So here's an astronaut holding a 410 battery, pound battery, and he says, "Here, you take it," and just you know, the guy grabs it. But, yes, they have lost tools and, Mm, you know, mm. like washers and and little pieces, parts like that have floated off that they haven't noticed until afterwards. Like, oh, yeah, we didn't get that washer packed away like we should have, but not batteries. They're they're big enough to watch. Yeah, I forgot
0: they're 400 pounds. Yeah. (laughs) And
3: and we actually had looked into – when we swapped out the old with the new, what are we going to do with the old? Can we take one and just say, yeah, we're done with it and throw it off the side and let it float away? And they did the analysis, and they were a little bit worried that it would come back around and hit the space station, and that would be a bad thing. So they burned them up. They sent them back down on the, the vehicle that brought up the new ones, and they burned up as they entered the atmosphere. So
1: Oh, Oh, wow. Are they just, like, purposely burned up? Yes. Oh, is uh, so Wow. So, I guess I had never, yeah. Yeah.
3: There are different types of, of cargo vehicles, and the Japanese mm. vehicle is that kind, that it goes up and it brings cargo to the space station, and like I said, it brought our batteries, it'll bring up new experiments, and then when it leaves, it just burns up in the atmosphere, yeah. There are the other kind, like SpaceX, that has gone up, and they brought crew up, and they brought crew down. They do not mm. burn up.
0: I'm learning so much. <laughs> Using the Earth's atmosphere as an incinerator yep. uh, to your advantage. Yeah.
1: Yes. Sorry, you're watching two people who had never considered this mind <laughs> yes. being blown because we're just like, wait, what? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, it's an interesting thing. You know, we were talking about you're watching— astronauts on a spacewalk, installing your batteries. What is it like to spend your life working on these projects, but you have yet to experience them in person, in space? Yeah,
3: I, I did apply to be an astronaut many, many years ago,
1: <laughs> oh.
3: but my eyesight wasn't good enough to even get an interview. But yeah, I I would have loved to have gone up there. And that was back in the days when we had the shuttle and people would go up for a couple weeks at a time and do their thing and experiments and stuff like that. So yeah, unfortunate, but this is the next best thing. I love working for NASA and, and being involved with the space program.
1: We ask because I think it's a thing that so many of us relate to, which is, you know, you you put all this work into something and maybe you don't get to experience it. Like, for example, I write scripts sometimes that I'm not in the production. So even though there's so much fun and I love them, I don't get a chance to do it. Uh, It's it's a very relatable feeling, at least for me.
3: But you do have the accomplishment of getting it done. So I have that accomplishment that, yes, I know, even though I'm not up there plugging it in and using it, I know it is doing its job and it's keeping the astronauts happy and safe.
1: Mm. I mean, that's incredible. Like, what a dream, honestly. What is the next version of the International Space Station?
3: Uh, the next version is a... Well, we're going to, to the moon is next. Ooh. And so part of what my center is doing is we are building the power and propulsion element for what's called gateway. And that will be kind of like a, a moon orbiting gas station for (laughs) other vehicles. So it'll just be, you know, orbiting the moon and then we'll launch something up there that can hook up to gateway And then they can have a lander that will land on the moon and people can set up habitats or practice living and working in space and eventually go on to Mars.
1: Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That was not a planned wow, everybody. (laughs) We truly are both like...
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This was really fascinating. Every number, every weight, size you quoted for a piece of equipment in space blew my mind. And and I'm going to really be thinking about a million pounds floating around in orbit, uh, not too far above our head, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. Well,
3: thank you for this
0: opportunity. I think your podcast is great. So thank you. Thank you so much. Just one last break. And when we return, we've got Ask a Space Explorer with Tracy Drain. We'll be right back.
1: And we're back. It's story time.
0: This week, we're joined by Tracy Drain, flight systems engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Yay.
1: Yay! So, so excited. Uh listeners, Tracy Drain was um our first interview and our first episode of this podcast, oh. Gillian did it. So if you have not heard it, please go back and listen to it. It's really incredible.
0: Yeah, it, it was such a great way to kick off the entire podcast with your interview. It was such a mm-hmm. terrific interview. And you have remained one of our favorite people to appear Aww. on the podcast. So we're so thrilled that you agreed to join us again. Um what's been going on? We talked all the way back in 2019. Uh, I think, I mean, aside from all the obvious things, I think you, do you have a new job title since last we spoke?
2: Yeah, boy, that feels like a lifetime ago now, doesn't it? With all the craziness going on in the world. And yeah, for me personally, I was the deputy project system engineer on the Psyche mission, which is in development, working on getting it launched very soon here. But I left Psyche in the summer of last year in order to become the new flight systems engineer for the Europa Clipper mission, which is in development, and we're working to get it launched in the fall of 2024.
1: Can you tell us about the Europa Clipper mission? I
2: can. Oh, it's just such a really fantastic mission. So Europa is one of the moons of Jupiter, and it is a very, very special place because scientists think that even though it's fairly small, it's a little bit smaller than our moon, that it has a shell of ice, and underneath that ice, lots and lots of liquid water, like more than twice the amount of water Mm. on the Earth combined, all nestled there under this moon at Jupiter. And science wondering, you know, hoping, wouldn't it be cool if it had all the right ingredients for life? You need some chemistry in order to mix together. You need a source of energy. And even though Jupiter is five times farther away from the sun than the earth is, there are some things going on that generate enough heat inside the moon to keep all that water liquid. And they think it probably has a solid core down there in the middle, which is a little melty (laughs) for reasons that we can discuss in a minute. But you have liquid water touching a rock interface with heats down there. And that might be a nice bubbling cauldron if you have all the right ingredients for life for life to potentially develop down there. So it's a, it's a really fantastic place to get to go and explore. Now, we're just going to go into orbit, unfortunately. We're not going to land or like <laughs> sink down under the ice in order to get down to the water or anything fancy like that. But even just being able to get close to it, do lots of flybys and, and study more about the, the moon is going to be fantastic.
1: We, I wish listeners could see both of our faces because <laughs> Gillian and I are both like, whoa.
2: <laughs> just
1: like, my I, I never, of course, well, yeah, I never knew any of this. I'm, I'm making it sound like no one told me about this.
2: But this is so incredible.
0: Okay, okay, just to clarify. On this mission, the spacecraft will orbit Jupiter, and then it'll do flybys close to Europa to collect data. So as the flight systems engineer... What is your job on the mission?
2: One of the cool things about being a systems engineer is that you kind of get to keep your fingers in everything. On the flight system engineering side, my job is responsible for leading a team of like 40-odd people to, to understand all the things that are being developed at the more detailed level. So the thermal, power, telecom, attitude control, propulsion, all of those things. There are lots of experts who work on those very specific subsystems, we call it, and then each individual like component that goes on a spacecraft associated with those things. But we need to understand them well enough to make sure that our design is going to have them all work together to be able to get the job done. And now that we're moving into this period of Actually, integrating components and doing lots of testing—nothing ever goes exactly right the way you expect it to—and so our job is to figure out when something goes a little bit sideways, like what happened, why did it happen, what can we do about it. And so my job is to lead a team of people who are doing that work in order to make sure we get to the launch view, or to the launch pad with a spacecraft that's going to work, and then hand it off to the operations team to to get it all the way out to Jupiter and get that science data. Ah. Well, I
1: mean, I when I say that I could literally talk about this for hours, I truly could. But I'm going to move on because we did bring you here for a special segment that we are calling Ask a Space Explorer. Yeah. So we asked some listeners and we asked our friends if you could ask a space explorer anything, what would you want to know? And this is this is honestly just for
2: fun, but also because we think you're super cool. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, I cannot wait to hear what it is that people had to ask. We'll see.
0: Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, so the first question is from Kimmy in Orange County. How does it feel to work in a career that is like within our culture, a synonym for the pinnacle of intelligence and capability?
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow, that's a great question. You know, there's so many feelings wrapped up in that, right? Most of it is just excitement. It's really cool to be around people who are doing this kind of work all day long. And we were just talking about, uh, Diana, how you are learning new things. I'm learning new things every single day because no one person can have all this information in their brain. So that's really cool, just being in that environment. It really feels like we are contributing to overall human knowledge. And that feels really, really good. Like no matter what else we do in our lives, we're kind of leaving behind a legacy for all of us to share. Sometimes, frankly, it's a little terrifying. <laughs> you've got these really expensive spacecraft that everyone has worked for years and years to go get to work. And it's just teeny bits of stress in order to be concerned about making sure that it's working. And so I tend to tell myself, right, like at least it's, it's not brain surgery. It's not open heart surgery. like No one's going to die <laughs> even if we mess up. So we'll do our best. But in the end, it's all good.
0: OK, next question is from my friend Joel McHale. How many things have to go correctly for a spacecraft to successfully launch?
2: Oh my gosh, so many things. Wow. You can think about it almost like a fractal, right? So we do this uh, exercise, and maybe we talked about it last time, I can't remember, uh, called Building Fault Trees, yes. where you start with, so oh, good. So you start with something that really has to work, like launch, and then you say, well, what are the major things that could go wrong so that launch was not successful? You're running out of power. Something's getting too hot or too cold. You don't have communication with the spacecraft, like all these things. And then you just keep going, breaking them down and down and down and down until you get all the way at the end where you are, well, at the end, <laughs> you get to the point where all the things you would do about it become the same. Mm -hmm. And on a fault tree for launch, you might have something like 800 to 1,000 items on it. But those items tend to end at like still pretty complex components like our star tracker or an inertial measurement unit. And then we do these things called FAMICAs, Failure Mode Effects Criticality Analyses. And those go all the way down to like individual pieces inside a component that could go wrong. And each one of those might have hundreds of items. So, So, you know, just hundreds and hundreds, thousands, like so many things have to go right in order to make the launch go well. And that's just um, and that's just focused on the hardware components of the spacecraft. And then you have all the things on the launch vehicle that have to go right and all the things with the operations team and all the computers they're using to be controlling things and the deep space networks that we use to communicate with it. Like, it's just crazy. So many things.
0: Okay, there's a question from John. Are you ever confused to the point of frustration when assembling furniture from Ikea? <laughs> because... If so, this will be a great comfort to us all non-scientists and engineers.
2: (laughs) You know, the funny thing is, because my job is all about problem solving all day long, and I find that to be fun, when I'm assembling (laughs) furniture and it's not working... It's kind of fun for me. I know that's weird. It makes me sound mildly pathological, but it is. Now, if I'm at it and I'm realizing I'm spending like five times longer than I wanted to and I'm just trying to get it done so I can kick back and watch my K-dramas or something, then yes, that will get frustrating. And then I do the thing that I advise everyone to do, phone a friend. (laughs) I have a husband. He's very handy. And so if I get to the point where something's making me bananas and it's not fun anymore, I'll go knock on his door and be like, here, go fix this. (laughs) I
1: I love assembling IKEA furniture secretly, and I also uh, my wife knows this because uh, <laughs> we'll get something from IKEA, and I'm like, oh, gotta get the uh, the Allen key set. Hold oh, on, that's fantastic.
2: <laughs> you also just like throw out the instructions and you're like, you know, I can do that. But, like, it's more fun to do it as a puzzle anyway.
1: <laughs> no, I I do read them, and I'm like, oh, I can't believe they did this step before this. Step. Well, I would have planed it first, but
2: okay, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, Here's a question we
1: got from Instagram. What do people always assume incorrectly about what you do?
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, no one's ever asked me that, but something has definitely popped in mind, which is that when we have a spacecraft that is going to take, you know, five years to get to where it's going, like Juno took five years to get all the way out to Jupiter, people incorrectly assume that there's nothing to do <laughs> that we're all bored out of our minds <laughs> that we're twiddling our thumbs. You go off and get some other job and come back. But uh, the thing is when you've just launched a baby spacecraft, there's all sorts of things that are not going to go quite right. And you have to figure out what to do about those things and, Even if everything went perfectly fine, you have all these checkout activities to do along the way. The scientists always want to exercise their instruments along the way and measure things like the solar wind, or Mm. if you do a flyby at the Earth or Mars, you want to point all your instruments at that body and make sure they're working before you get all the way out to where you're going. So it's just busy, busy, busy. It's a different kind of busy in operations than it is when you're developing something on the ground. So much stuff to do. May I ask, what is a solar wind? Oh, yeah. So the sun really cool thing in our solar system is generating just crazy amounts of energy by nuclear fusion that's going on down inside the heart. And it's making all of this heat and photons and stuff that's escaping it all the time, like going out in all directions. And even though we think of space as being empty, Mm -hmm. like all these charged particles and things are coming from the sun in a solar wind and um, when you have your spacecraft out there oftentimes we have really sensitive instruments in order to measure whatever body we're going to and it can measure things about the solar wind wow you can even like there's now a, um, a technology called solar sails where you make these huge gossamer structures that you can use to get around the solar system by essentially tacking into the solar wind it's pretty cool
1: like windsurfing in yeah, the solar system. That's right. Wow! <laughs> okay, this question is from Jessica from the San Francisco Bay Area. What is the coolest thing you've worked on thus far?
2: Oh no, that is that's such a hard question. <laughs> 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 my spacecraft—they're all my babies. I gotta say that. Oh, the coolest thing. Mm. From a perspective of just the pure science, I think it's gotta be the Kepler mission because mm. it really did expand our understanding of just how many planets are out there in our Milky Way galaxy. Like that melted my brain. <laughs> it's just so cool. <laughs> and now there's follow-on missions like Tess that are going out there and, and finding even more and and people who are trying to find more planets near our own solar system. So that's just really cool. But when it comes to the specific work that I've gotten to do, I think like one of the most cool experiences is if you're when you're on the operations team in the control room during launch or mm-hmm. during arrival, just because it's such a pinnacle of all this work that you and your team have done to get there. And it's such a nail-biting moment that all those thousands of things have to go right for it to go well. And you feel like you're in the middle of a movie set because everyone is saying the things you hear on TV, right? Like, are, are we go over lunch? And, you know, all the countdowns and you're communicating back and forth with the Deep Space Network. And that all just feels very surreal, even when you're in the middle of it, even when you've done it multiple times. And even when you've rehearsed for that thing multiple times, it still just feels really, really cool.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask... Does it feel like you're stepping into like a set? Because we've all seen those scenes so many times in movies and TV. <laughs> is there something substantially different? I'm, sh- I'm sure there are infinite things that are substantially different than how it is in uh, movies and TV shows. But was there something that surprised you the first time you were
2: there for a launch? Ah, uh, you know, was I surprised? I'm, I'm not sure I was surprised by it. But it is a thing that I always think about when we're in the control room for those specific kinds of events. And um, you think about what you see on TV. So when you're watching a movie like The Martian or something really cool like that, um, a lot of times the graphics that people have that are displayed are, you know, almost look like little mini movies themselves of what's happening with the spacecraft. And yeah, it really doesn't look like that. (laughs) Most of the things that we look at are screens full of tables with numbers (laughs) or graphs with numbers, like super boring. Now, these days, and this is where like life is starting to imitate art a little Mm. bit, which is where we have this really cool... um, app called Eyes on the Solar System, where they've taken very high quality models of the spacecraft and they've piped in like real time telemetry or the attitude and where it is. And so they really do have graphics that are starting to look like the graphics that you see in movies. But it's there really for situational awareness and the things that we really need when we're the people in the chairs paying attention to what the spacecraft is doing, being ready to like do stuff if there are anomalies. Uh,
1: This is a question from someone in New Jersey. Is jet propulsion the only mechanism for breaking gravity, or are there others? The subtext of this question is, is warp drive possible?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's so cute. So <laughs> I know that there are lots of things out there in internet land about warp drive. I personally have zero expertise in what people are doing and researching <laughs> those ways. When I think about um, propulsion for spacecraft, the things that I'm familiar with, there's chemical propulsion, which is where you take a, usually a fuel and an oxidizer and you mix them so that they combust. And then you end up with hot gases going one direction, which is pushing your spacecraft the other direction. Um, and then on Psyche, they use a... Uh, different kind of system a xenon electric propulsion system a xenon ion engine where you take xenon ion, atoms which are like xenon is a noble gas it doesn't really like to interact with anything but if you put the atoms through a really high voltage field it'll strip electrons off which will make them positively charged and then you have a nice magnetic field which is oriented in such a way to accelerate the xenon ions out the back of the spacecraft and then that pushes your spacecraft in the other direction and you know, Xenon-9 atoms are small. <laughs> you do this with a whole bunch of them. But it still produces a very small amount of thrust. And so you just have to keep thrusting and thrusting and going and going and going to build up acceleration over time, which gets you going at a pretty good clip, and that'll get you out to where you're headed, um, And which is different from the chemical propulsion missions where where you think about – We launch a spacecraft on a launch vehicle, which gives it a huge amount of the energy we need to get to where we're going. And then you do trajectory correction maneuvers to make sure you're on the right track. And that's where you do, like, temporary burns. Like, you might burn for 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, Some of the burns that we're going to be doing on uh, the Europa Clipper spacecraft on the way there are like that.
0: Okay, here's a question from someone in New York City. What are space explorers most curious about?
2: Yeah, what are space explorers most curious There are so many things. I think as a, as, a, as a space explorer myself, the thing that I'm most curious about is just anything that is unexpected. Mm. I love the fact that we send instruments out there looking, and, and scientists have some sense of what they're looking for, but they're always surprised by things like that that whole picture of the, the crazy hexagon pattern on one of the poles of Saturn and the, the eight storms that are all symmetrically organized on the North Pole of Jupiter. Like, really? Is that a thing? I, I love that. I love just being surprised by stuff that people didn't even expect to be out there. And I also think that um, the things that speak to overall understanding that, that fundamentally changes the way we think about the universe, like mm-hmm. the whole thing that there are Like literally billions and billions and billions of planets out there, like just mind altering. And I'm very curious about things like that.
1: This has been so incredible. Um, Thank you so, so much for doing this.
2: It's my pleasure.
1: I want to go over some of the questions that we did not ask Tracy, because we actually had some really good ones that we did not get to. Yes, cut for time. Cut for time. Uh, one of them was, what is the most common misconception about scientists at NASA? Mm. Wait, here's another one. Yeah. Um, will we be stranded on Earth if something isn't done soon? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they did not clarify what something was or what this was regarding.
0: I think this was in regards to space junk. Um Things orbiting the Earth that are going to prevent launches.
1: Uh, It is funny to think of us as being stranded on Earth, Mm -hmm. like the place where we already live, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like stranded on Mars or the moon.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was starting to think, like, can we send a big magnet up there to attract? (laughs) 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 It's like very like third grade ideas about a collecting space junk.
1: Hey, listen though, but if that's what does it, yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: it's time to read some reviews. It's time here. to read some reviews. This one is from Rural. Uh the D episode was such a fun listen. Would love to hear more of Dreyla and Brian. Brian, yes, Brian. 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 Brian.
0: <laughs> Drela. Drela. <laughs> Here's another review from Zan Hart. As a woman who works in STEM and a mother of a daughter, it is gratifying and encouraging to have formats like this to listen and engage both me and the world at large. I shared the first episode with Tracy Drain with my five-year-old daughter, and she was simply enthralled. I can't wait for new episodes each week to enjoy and share with her and everyone else too. Gillian and Deanna are so adorable and sound like great friends which is also a bonus in listening thanks to all that make this possible and please people check it out Oh. Yay! Yeah. Uh, I lo- I love the co-sharing with kids. Yeah. That actually makes
1: me so happy.
0: I know. I-, I didn't anticipate that when we started this podcast, but every time I hear that, it makes me so happy because I have such great memories of listening to like public radio in the car with my mom as a kid. Mm-hmm. So it feels like yeah. a continuation of that.
1: And me watching PBS with my dad. Oh. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We might read your comments on the show.
0: And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We're at Periodic Talks. This podcast
1: is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon.
0: Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns.
1: Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres.
0: Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana.
1: Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Ditcher.